You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. But I want to start by just saying this. Clothes, they're a funny thing. Especially church clothes. They're a funny thing. What you wear to church. I remember one of the earliest times. We were, we were kind of what I call CEOs, Christmas and Easter only Christians. Uh, so we were a CEO family when I was young. And, but, but still, when you show up for Easter, you act like you've been there before. And you dress like you've been there before. I think I was in about third grade and I remember uh, purple slacks and an orange silk shirt was, that was the thing. And so it didn't matter, it didn't seem to matter how often you went to church or engaged in any kind of life, in church life, like Easter showed up and you looked the part, right? Yeah, you had to, you needed good church clothes and whites and lilies and pinks and whatever else you were supposed to wear. It's like at church time, that's when we all act like professional Christians. The rest of the year doesn't really matter. Well, I remember first coming to faith and, and really, it was in high school, but quickly learning this idea that your clothing didn't matter, that, that Jesus accepts you as you are, which was one of the coolest things to learn in the world is that, is that maybe as I observed church life, I thought certain things, and then when you realize that Jesus doesn't care about that, you go, that's awesome. He just cares about my heart. Like that, that, that's what he's going after. He's going after my heart. But, but it's funny. The flesh does funny things with that truth, and it kind of distorts it into anybody who dresses nicely is a fool. That's what it can kind of flip into, especially when you're young in your faith, and you're like, oh my gosh, why would you wear a nice jacket to church? Like that's the dumbest thing in the world. Only, only people who don't understand the grace of Jesus would ever do that. And if you just understood Jesus like I understood Jesus, then you would know better than to do that. So clearly you don't understand who Jesus is. Well, fast forward like 15 years, something like that. Seems like all of a sudden, but it was probably 15 years. Now I'm pastoring at a church and I had a couple take me aside. One of the most loving, kindest, generous couples in the world. And they said, because I'm pastoring a church of like, Church is about 45 years old. And so there's just this diversity of age from birth to 80, right? We're all there. And this couple takes me aside who loves me to pieces. And they say, Hans, we'd like to buy you new clothes. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) It's actually where this jacket came from. Hans, we'd like to buy you new clothes. I think the slacks and the shoes. But I got my own socks, just so you know. Um, Yeah. Uh, Actually, I'm not joking. Everything that you see came from that conversation. Yeah, it fits. Yeah, well, it was only like four years ago. Hopefully it still fits. And I thought, wait a second, right? Because you you could take great personal offense if somebody says, hey, could you dress up a little more? Especially because high school Hans knew what the gospel was all about. And it's like, what are, you, what are you telling me? You're telling me that God will love me? Right, or you start to add all these things, like God will love me more if I do this. And they're like, no, 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 no. All we're saying is some of the old fogies in the room, in which they were some of, 
they'll listen to you more if you don't look like a slob. I thought, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, when you kind of uh, roll out of bed and try to go preach a sermon and you don't do anything. Now, that's, of course, it's a little bit of an overstatement. But they said, we just feel that it would better communicate to the breadth of experience in the room if maybe you took it up a notch. Not, not you, right? We still want you to be Hans. But maybe if you were just more aware of the people around you. Well, this does things to my brain, right? It's like, and you go, wait, wait a minute. I thought, I thought Jesus didn't care, right? Like, I thought Jesus didn't care about what I wore. And he's like, he doesn't. He doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's not about your salvation. It's maybe just about how you could be communicated and communicate better to this room that has different experiences and whatever else. I thought, huh, okay. So, of course, they, they, they said we've been praying about this a year and haven't told you yet because we've been embarrassed by it. I'm like, well, not embarrassed enough, apparently. <laughs> like, and then you have to have this dawning, right? I had to have it. It, took, it was 15 years or so in the making. But it isn't about clothes, is it? It's not, it's not about clothes one way or the other. Like, I took something that was true that Jesus doesn't care, and I then made that the rule for everybody in the room. And so people whose stories and experiences I didn't know, I thought, well, you shouldn't care about what I wear anyways because Jesus loves us regardless. And they're like, that's not, I'm not even trying to say that, Hans. I'm not trying to talk about God's love for you. I'm trying to, and, and, and I'm trying to talk about, just as a pastor, how you might be able to communicate in this specific context, right, Baton Rouge. This is the first time I've worn slacks preaching at Genesis, just so you know, um, and the last. <laughs> now, we're going to get into some specific ideas later, specific ways that this can actually be toxic, this reasoning can be toxic for churches, either way, one way or the other, because that statement of you must dress nicely is just as bad as you should never, right? Both of those harm the church. They harm what God is doing in our midst because they create certain assumptions that aren't true. But let's just think about a few things. Think about how you live your life and think about the things that you love, the experiences that you have, and maybe how you feel about the way church life should happen or how you feel about the way people should believe or how you feel about the way that people should talk or how you feel about the way people should look or the way that people should whatever. They were formed somewhere. Likely one part experience, kind of over here. One part what you know, one part socioeconomic class, one part uh, maybe, if we're lucky, formed from scripture. We don't really know though. And then we all get together in the same room and we try to live life together. One of the things, of, you'll see Genesis has these statements about how we operate. One of them is live in diverse community, which wants to talk about how we look. Uh, diverse, uh, diverse racially, diverse of experience, background stories, uh, all of those things coming together in one room because we believe that's what Jesus has done for us. But when you put all those people in one room, there can be problems. There can be problems in how we view what is most important. That's why it's always easier just to cluster up with people who just believe what you believe and like what you like and talk how you talk and spend how you spend and love what you love and cheer for LSU. Like, it's always easier that way. 
But, but sometimes, as we do that and we live life together, we start to look at one another and get rather judgmental. Well, if only they knew Jesus like I knew Jesus, they would do the things that I do. If only they had the experiences that I had. And I was talking to Patrick about this sermon just a couple of weeks ago, and we had, he had this phrase, and we started to use, like, you either would arrive to my conclusions or you would be on your way to arriving at my conclusions if you just loved Jesus enough. You would have come to where I've come, or you're, you're on your way, right? Like, we've made the turns, and we have the map. But that's not true. That's not true. In fact, we can come to different conclusions about some things, not about all things, but about some things and still honor and worship the risen Lord Jesus. All of us, though, have ways that we live and ways that we are tempted to make laws for other people. They don't really feel like laws for us because they're how we operate. But then we take how we live and what we do and make that measuring sticks for other people's holiness and what they should do and how they should live in the life of the church. And if we're not careful, these become for us ways that if you understood better, you would be more saved or something like that. Or, 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 or really, I don't even really know if you know Jesus because if you knew Jesus like I knew Jesus, you wouldn't believe those things. You wouldn't dress like that or talk like that or, or live like that or listen to music like that. You would never do those things. So what we will do today is look at an incredibly important passage in the book of Acts and we're gonna answer, hopefully, hopefully answer this question. How should the church respond to legalism? How should the church respond to legalism? That's the question we wanna to answer today, but I'm gonna give you a definition of legalism so we know what we're going after, because I think we misuse this term all the time. We call everything legalistic. If we say, hey, we don't you know, do, do life like this, they're gonna be like, well, you're such a legalist. So, so we're gonna define legalism so that we know what we're talking about. So here we go. What is legalism? I put it like this. Attempting to gain God's acceptance through anything other than the finished work of Jesus. And, and that could be through, for our salvation that we try to gain God's love for us by something that we do, by a certain way we believe something, a certain way that we talk, something about the way that we behave, that God then says, I'm for you. I love you now. I'm glad that you've done that. Or it could be for us, we have a kind of a a defunct theology which says that, no, 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 I'm saved by grace through faith, but I have to kind of keep saved by doing the right thing and living the right way and behaving the right way. And if I do those things, then God will accept me more. He'll love me more, he'll care for me more. So, so trying to gain God's acceptance, his, his welcoming arms by anything other than the finished work of Jesus. That's what legalism really is. It's not discipline. Spiritual disciplines, for example, they're a good thing. They're a good thing to discipline yourself to read the Bible. That's a good thing. To think that God somehow loves you more because you read the Bible is when the discipline becomes the legalism. Oh, because I've done these things, God loves me more. But it is incredibly 
askew to take anybody who lives their life with discipline and assume that they're a legalist. But that's sometimes how we misuse the phrase. Oh, you're just such a legalist because you have disciplines in your life. You do certain things. You behave in certain ways. That's, that's not legalism. At least not, you can't, you can't diagnose it just by looking. It's when the behavior turns into an assumption that God is going to approve more of me, accept me more, love me more, keep me saved if I behave in these ways. And if I don't behave in these ways, he's really angry with me. He doesn't love me. He's probably pushed me outside of salvation because I've just screwed up too many times. So we're dealing with the idea of gaining God's acceptance. We're not dealing with the idea of just disciplining yourself or even living wisely in your context. And to do that, we will be in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is... I mean, I, I keep saying every one of these chapters is a key chapter in the book of Acts, but they all are. Acts chapter 10 is when the gospel comes to the Gentiles in a way that Peter and others are like, whoa, whoa, like the spirit is moving in ways that we don't expect, right? Jew, Gentile, the Jews have been the one who have like lived faithfully their whole lives and then Gentiles are over here. Now the Gentiles are getting saved through faith in Jesus. 10 years have passed. We finished the first missionary journey last week because we're going you know, rapid fire through. And what do we see as that happens is as Jew and Gentile start to operate together, they have to define time and time again what the gospel really means and how it applies to the church. And in Acts chapter 15, it's when the leadership of the church, as we might call it, the Jerusalem church, Paul, Barnabas, others gather together in Jerusalem to discuss an issue of how people are saved, especially now these Gentiles are coming to faith. How do they need to operate? And this is the first thing that we're going to see. Now, we're going to kind of do this bit by bit because it's a long chapter. And as we do this bit by bit, hopefully we'll be able to see the beauty of the gospel over anything else. And we're going to start with the first five verses. And we see this idea. Believers, believers will be tempted to overburden fellow brothers and sisters. Like that's the temptation. That we're going to overburden one another with access to God by how we tell them to act. How we tell them to operate. And this is what we'll see in the first five verses. So some men came down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You hear that? You cannot be saved. Unless you live like this, or unless you have this done, salvation is not yours. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all God had done with them. Verse five, and this, is, this kind of sets up the problem. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary to circumcise them and have them keep the law of Moses. Now, now 
The reason verse 5 is important is because if you look, but some who? Believers who belonged to what group? The Pharisees. Now, I don't want to be a Pharisee, right? We know the song. Pharisees aren't fair, you see. Like, we, we, we know if we grew up in church, like, we, we just want to be sheep. But here, we have believing Pharisees, okay? Like, let's not miss that. But some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees said, well, they must do this. They must do this. Why do you think they've said that? Because they've done it. They've done it, and they are doing it, and they are believers, which is kind of like an elixir of confusion for us. Wait a minute, so you're circumcised, and you follow the law, and you're a believer. Like, those, those things don't mix. Pharisees are bad, right? We just want to be sheep. But that's not the case. You see, when you look at that right there, they're saying, of course they do, That's what we've done. That's what we know, and that's how, I would say like this, that's how we live out our faith. So here's here's a a thought that I, it was shocking to me when I heard it like 15 years ago or whenever it was, 10 years ago. It seems as you look at Acts 15 that there were Pharisees who had faith in Jesus, saving faith in Jesus, which means they understand it's it's not about their works who were living according to the law as a way to express their faith, okay? They were expressing their faith with their experience, with their life and what they knew, but that was confusing them. I would say that perhaps these Pharisees, they were being, in this sense, legalists when they were trying to apply their experience to the Gentiles, okay? The question is, should the Gentiles do what we do? not should anybody be circumcised, okay? That's an important distinction for us to know. So the Pharisees are going, of course they must, we've done it. We've done it, and so they need to do it. But this is what we do, isn't it? This is how we operate. People always need to do the things we've done because we've done them. It's like that, that, that parenting thing, like, well, you need to do this and hate it because I did it and I hated it. Eat your broccoli. I don't care if you like it or don't like it or even have an allergy to it. I had to do it. I had to do it, so you have to do it. And so well-meaning brothers from the party of the Pharisees go, yeah, of course they have to do it. It would make no sense for them not to. The question on the table is not, should Jews stop circumcising? That's not what they're talking about here. Should Jews just stop living this way? Now, you have to understand the difference. Obey so that God loves me, or God loves me so I obey, right? And let's assume for that second that the believing Pharisees are operating the way they operate because God loves them and they have faith in Jesus. Not, we have to do these things so that we can gain God's love. Let's extend to these brothers benefit of the doubt that believers from the party of the Pharisee, that the Spirit inspired Luke to write that on purpose, okay? So they're not saying God's gonna love you more Necessarily, they're not living like that, but now they're saying to their Gentile brothers, yeah, you have to do it too, because we have to do it. This would make sense. It would make sense because it's what they've known. It's what they've grown up with. It's what they've seen. It's, what, it's, it's everything about their lives. So when I ask you, hey, should I do the things that you've done, your answer should probably be, of course. Like, they're easy. Well, they're easy for you. 
Not necessarily easy for me. I, uh, uh, there's an author in Baton Rouge that I wanted to meet. And he's Eastern Orthodox. And I said, I'd really like to get to know you. I'd lo- love to talk about your book and just whatever. I don't, I don't even remember. No, I, I, my friend is a realtor and he gave me his info. I was like, well, just be sure you get his approval to give me his, his info because I don't want to be weird like that. But if he says, okay, I'd love to, I'd love to meet with him. And uh, so we scheduled a lunch and he goes, and, and Eastern Orthodox fast twice a week. I believe Wednesday and Friday from certain kinds of food twice a week. And so he says, I'd love to have lunch with you, but I only eat these kinds of food on Friday. So wherever we go has to be, you know, it's not like I can't be around it. It's just, I have to be sure that I can eat. So what's he doing? That's a discipline. He's not making for me a law. He's just not going, and you should too, buddy. He's just going, this is how I live out my faith. That's a right understanding. The Pharisees here are saying, you need to live out your faith like I live out my faith. That's what you need to do. You need to follow Jesus like I follow Jesus in every single way. But we have the tendency to do this. Though most of the churches that we interact with are Gentile, meaning non-Jewish, there are so many ways, not necessarily with circumcision, that we start to lock the door of the gospel for people and they just can't get in. And we don't even know, because it's been the part of life that we have been absorbed in. All of our experiences, all of our understandings, the things we like, the things we love, the things we hate, they all get balled up into church life and then brought here. And then someone who doesn't know Jesus, or they're really excited about their faith, they watch other believers operate and they start to go, do I need to do that too? Do I need to do, I need to do that? Do I need to do that? And we have to be really careful about our answers. There's a few that come out pretty strongly here in spring and the surrounding areas that you might feel in different ways. One, school choice. Well, how do you school your kids and what do you do there? Well, like the only faithful way to do it is fill in the blank. If you loved Jesus enough, you would do it like this. If you followed Jesus enough, you would do this. Just fill in the blank. Private, public, homeschool, doesn't really matter. We can have all these convictions that have been formed, but at the same time, they become then measuring rods for other people's righteousness. If you were just closer to the Lord, you would, you would know that this is, this is really the only way to do it. You would know that this is the only way to do it. Now, how dare you get prescriptions for medicine or whatever it might be. Like, like, like it, it's like, that's not... That, you know, I, I could shake this thing all day and, and whether or not I go to public school or private school or homeschool is not gonna fall out. It won't. Unless you bend it, hold it up to the light in a funny way and squint. And that's what legalism will do. So that, that's a thing, I, I go, I go, they watch and they don't know why the convictions have been formed the way that they have. And they'll say, do I have to do that? Is, is faithfully following Jesus that? And we have to be able to say, no, not necessarily. It's not. Our theological positions are another one. Now I'm not talking about just orthodoxy, right? Like that, you can't really leave the orthodox faith. 
Meaning, kind of the Nicene Creed, the thing that forms who we are, the things that if you reject them, you are not a Christian. If you reject Jesus as Savior or as fully God and fully man, kind of hard to get on that train and also get on the salvation train. But the things to which you must grab onto to believe, though they are significant, they aren't many. And yet we will add on to many. So you sit around too long and people are like, so what's your view on creation? And I'm like, uh. And it's funny because people always try to hear what you're not saying by what you are saying. And you just go, I don't really want to answer that because Why? It's like they're trying to size you up. Like, what, what good is that going to play right now in this moment in regard to people following after Jesus? Notice, I'm not making a statement, but you might have already assumed my position by not answering it. Well, if you cared more about it, you'd answer it. I'm not preaching Genesis right now, and so I'm not worried about it. Patrick did that. You go back and listen to the Patrick sermon. Did he answer that question? How old is the earth? But also with theological positions, because if you're unfamiliar with this church, it's an Acts 29 church. And so Acts 29 uh, prescribes to a specific theological position on salvation, uh, which would be reformed soteriology, was kind of how it would work if you want big words. And so it says something specific, but you might go, do I need to believe that to attend here? And the answer is no, no. Why in the world would we make a secondary or tertiary matter The thing you must believe to be able to operate here as a believer. It is ridiculous, and yet we'll do it. We'll kind of say, well, if only you read the Bible more accurately, you would come to these conclusions. If only you were more diligent in your study, you would come to these conclusions. If only you would do this. If people are going, I can't can't get into that room if that's all you're, if you're gonna keep putting things on the door. I can't come in and receive the grace of Jesus if you're gonna keep telling me that there are all these nuances to your faith that I have to follow. And you can feel it. And maybe some of you have felt that in church experiences where you've done, where you walk in and you're just like, I cannot keep up with all the things that I have to do here. And it may not even be stated legalism, but unstated. Where you just kind of get these looks of like, ooh, man, if only you knew. Food and drink habits. I joke about this, but it's also true. One of the questions that I have been asked the most since I have come here in July is, do you drink? Yeah, do you drink? And I'm like, why? The answer is no, for one, if you want to, so no, I don't. But it's not because I think that I love Jesus more than you. You want to know, alcoholism runs in the family, and I think alcohol tastes like garbage. Like, if you want, like, those are the two reasons. The end. So there's the reason why. And so why acquire the taste for garbage? I've already done it for coffee. I don't need to do it twice. But we have this feeling that if only you would listen more, if only you would would, would read the scriptures more clearly, you would land there. How in the world can you pastor at an Acts 29 church and not drink, Hans? Like, because that's not a requirement to pastor here. That's why. If it were a requirement, I wouldn't pastor here. It's that easy. But we stack these things on and we don't even know that we do it. Why? Because they're a part of us. They're a part of us in how we operate. And we'll say, 
oh, true faith looks a lot like my faith. But it's funny because if I put your faith into many other global contexts, it wouldn't look like faith at all. Wait a minute, so you just smile and show up on Sundays and like that's your life? Because I'm getting beaten up over here. Is that, is that all your faith really is? Like you drop how we believe and how we operate into numerous contexts and it's gonna not look like any kind of faith. It's gonna look like easy believism. But so often we're gonna make Jesus look like us. We're gonna make disciples look like us. We're gonna make people look like us because that's what feels nice. So then what do we do? How do we break free from that statement, you must live like this if you're gonna be saved? And it's to keep things obnoxiously simple. Like, like stupidly simple. The solution to overburdening is understanding that salvation comes by grace through faith. The statement, keep the main thing the main thing. If that becomes the way that you build church life and your discipleship, then you will start to realize that you can't make secondary or tertiary or whatever down primary matters. Or your church will be full of believers who look like you. And unbelievers walk in here and they're like, I don't want that Jesus. Like, that Jesus is crazy. That Jesus has to vote for these people, live like this, parent like this, do like this, and I don't want that Jesus. Because we've hung all these things on him like a Christmas tree. So they continue to discuss. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 11 here. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, and I want to just pause there, there was really no debate because Peter saw 10 years prior in Cornelius' house that that the decision had been made by God. So there was no debate, but he was gonna let it happen because he's smart. And sometimes as a parent, you let your kids argue. They'll come to a conclusion eventually. But so, so he's just gonna let them discuss, right? Walk it out, figure it out. Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the, my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You know this already. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just like he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing, listen to this, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You hear what he says? They debate, they explain, and then Peter essentially mic drops it and goes, you already know the answer to this. You have seen the Spirit come to the Gentiles. Now who are we to place this incredible burden on them that you, hey, let's be honest, none of us could do it. We couldn't live this thing out. We can't obey the law perfectly. We never could, never have, never will. It's always Jesus. So why would we even pretend to add that to their lives? Like to make us feel better? It doesn't work. We know that we will be saved by grace just as they have. There's no other way to be saved. 
You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough. You can't obey enough to make God go, okay, finally, like finally I love you. I had this conversation with my kid yesterday because sometimes I just hand out shekels. I had a dollar in my wallet. I had a sick kid. I was like, here's a dollar, whatever. Here's a dollar. And Courtney, here's a dollar for you too. Well, one kid sees that and he's like, why didn't I get a dollar? Because I don't want to give you one and I'm out. And he was sick and you weren't there and I had dollars and that was it. But, you know, forget the fact that we just went to dinner and I spent like 30 times that much on you guys uh, without your brother there. But he's like, but yeah, but I don't have a dollar. And the conversation then moved towards things like, well, if, you know, if you give me a dollar, I'll love you more. I said, bro, that's not how love works. Like, that's not how, that's not how it goes. It's not, you don't earn it. So I don't give you dollars because, you know, I want you to love me more. Any more than you receive them because you want to love me more. That's just, that's the wrong way to think about it. That's what Peter's saying. We can't do this, guys. It doesn't work. Trying to earn your salvation has never worked. That's why Jesus is here. No hurdles should ever stand in the way between the Gentiles and Jesus any more than hurdles should stand in the way between the Jews and Jesus. You can't do it. I'm not a good hurdler either, so good. But you have to gain a certain cadence even to be able to hurdle well. So Peter goes, we can't do this. We can't make them do this. We can't make them obey like this because we haven't been able to do it. Now, hey, Pharisees, if you want to try to obey the law through faith and then when you don't repent and ask forgiveness from the Lord Jesus, go for it. You want to circumcise your kids? Go for it. That's awesome. If it's done from faith, now we know that anything not from faith is sin, so those works are going to burn up anyways if they're not from faith. But if you want to discipline yourself here in Jerusalem to operate in your faith in unique ways, then you have my permission so long as it's done from faith. But once you take that and put it on somebody else to do the same thing, you've crossed the line. You've crossed the line. There is no burden you can place on them that will gain their salvation. It is only the grace of Jesus. And it's always the grace of Jesus. So through faith, we are received into his family, and that's it. So if this is your first time here, or you're not a believer, and you're going, I don't even know really how to get saved, by grace through faith. The grace of God that says you can't earn it, that also means that you really can't feel that good about the things you do that are good which is a bummer because I like to earn things and you like to earn things. When you do a good job at work, you want to be rewarded and God's kind of like, hey, listen, son died for you and every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. What else would you like? A car, nice house, better job. You know, I want those things. The, the eternal riches, like, I'm not even there yet. We love to earn things. And grace is an assault to that, honestly. The gospel's an assault to that because it goes, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You never will. You can't earn it. You just receive it. You're like, but that's not what I do. That's not how I operate. That's not like that. I'm like, I know. It is opposite the way the world works. And it's opposite the way your flesh works. It's opposite the way your heart works and desires things because you desire to earn. I do this, you do this. We are all transactional, except for God. God, because you can't pay the price, I'll pay it. 
You can't keep yourself saved, I'll keep you. You just believe. I love what happens next. Because James is about to stand up and James is kind of the leader in the Jerusalem church and they do an important thing. And the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. And after they finished, James replied, hey brothers, listen, Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make those things known from of old. And, and what happens here is really important. Because they all have this experience, but they know that experiences need to be validated by Scripture. Okay? You can't just have had an experience and then assume that's the way the world works. So they all have this experience and then they go to the scriptures and they say, is this what God has always said he would do? And then James is like, oh, you know what? We actually missed it. In Amos, it says that the Gentiles are going to be involved in God's family. Yeah, it's right there. So you've seen it, you've experienced it, you were at Cornelius' house, you guys know uh, Paul and Barnabas are bringing people to faith over in Galatia like crazy, Jews and Gentiles. But you know what? This has been said. The scriptures attest to what we're seeing and to what we've experienced. But there's an important thing that goes on because understanding grace doesn't mean living without boundaries. Right, and that's that legalism part. It was legalistic to have boundaries. No, it's not. Understanding grace doesn't mean living without boundaries. In fact, if you look at 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, idolatry, from sexual immorality, makes sense, from what has been strangled and from blood, the way you kill and the way you eat, let's, let's tell them that. From, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, there are different ways to take what's going on right here, but I think what we are seeing is James going, let's give these guys some specific ways to operate that will allow them to interact with the Jews more faithfully. That if Jews saw these guys operating without these kind of boundaries, then the fellowship between Jew and Gentile is going to be harmed. It's not gonna mean that they're not even saved, it's gonna mean that their fellowship is going to be harmed. And by the way, these are kind of important. Idolatry, sexual immorality, those are key ways that we can show Jesus to the world and how we don't do those things, not in how we do them. And then the way that you eat, because that's an important part of the Jewish life, is how you eat, and is that food prepared appropriately? So he goes, I think what's happening here is that James is going, let's give some parameters that are gonna allow Jew and Gentile to operate together in church life. And that's smart. It's wisdom. Operate like this. But what's funny, you know, as that continues, what's funny is that once the second missionary journey begins in Acts chapter 16, Paul does something that I can't stand. I really can't, it's not that I can't stand it. But in the first three verses of chapter 16, 
Paul does this. Paul came to also to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were also in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So here they are in Acts chapter 15 going, no circumcision for people who are not, uh, you know, anybody really, no circumcision. And then the next chapter, Paul grabs Timothy, he's like, circumcision, bro. And you have Peter texting like, what the heck? We just, we, I thought, this is, we just settled this. We just talked about this. Why in the world are we, are we going backwards? But listen to what it says. Circumcised them because of the Jews who were in those places. So let's allow the gospel we preach to be received better by these people through circumcision. I think Timothy's crazy for going along with it. But it wasn't about salvation. It was about mission in that moment. How do we live in a way that allows our message to be heard? The difference is salvation versus wisdom in mission. That's important for us to hold on to. So, summarily, as they go through 15 through 29, they write a nice long letter to the Gentiles and all the churches. I don't have the verses there behind you, but essentially what they say is, hey, we've had this great chat and we realize salvation comes by grace through faith, so what we would really like for you to do, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to agree on these things. Live in this way, with these kind of four prohibitions. And then like, if you do your, uh, verse 29, if you keep yourself from these, you'll do well. Farewell. The letter ends. And so we have, they were sent off and they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And it's encouragement, because, and they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judah and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the problem, they debate, they come to the right conclusion, they deliver the news, the church rejoices, and that's the last thing that we can see in those last verses is that grace-based reasoning causes rejoicing grace-based reasoning when you deliver that news to people it causes rejoicing the kid who heard you don't have to dress a certain way or look a certain way when he was a teenager for God to love you goes oh my gosh really really you you mean I don't have to live like this with these certain dials turned the right way just the right way to gain God's acceptance don't. Then the flesh goes, yeah, now let's make everybody feel that way just you know, perfectly that how you live must be how they live. And then I become a legalist. But when there is grace-based reasoning, it causes rejoicing. And so when I think about our church and these ideas, I think of three things. Three things. First, clear message. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's it. 
Not Jesus saves and you also better be reformed or Jesus saved you long ago, you should have known that by now. Like we don't need to say those things, right? It's like having to jam your Calvinism into your gospel presentation. Well, I just need you to know that even if you believe, God already knew you were gonna believe. What? Like, that's, that's joyless. Just talk to them about Jesus. Show them Jesus. Let God do the work. You don't have to define it for them. Remind them of how good Jesus is. Remind them of what Jesus has done. Remind them that they can approach him with freedom and confidence through faith. Clear message. Second is simple structures. And what I mean by that is how we operate as a church, we don't want to be overly cumbersome. We'd love for you to be in a community group. Not because God will love you more, but because we think that's gonna be helpful for you. But we're not gonna make you. So we're gonna have a few things. We don't want your life's calendar to be dictated by church life. Well, Monday we got this, Tuesday this, Wednesday this, Thursday this, Friday this, Saturday this, Sunday this. There will be times when you're around and active and engaged, and there'll be times where you're a little disengaged and programs, and that's okay. We want simple ways to engage in the life of the church, not overburdening ways, because why? Somebody else who comes to faith sees those and they're like, golly, like, I gotta keep a Google calendar just to know what's going on with like your church life and all those things. That's really hard. So, simple structures, and then third, I put, I originally put few hurdles, but you know what? That was the legalist in me. I had to change it. No hurdles. That means when you're telling me something or I'm telling you something that can move toward legalism, like we just have to be okay with how one another operate and express our faith. So as much as I wanted to put few hurdles, Acts 15 tells me I can't put those. Now we know like driving here is in a way a hurdle. You have to get here. You have to show up. Okay, but man, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to be here and find Jesus, right? To embrace him and to rejoice in the salvation that they have or that they can find. That's what we need. A clear message with simple structures and no hurdles to find a God who loves them and gave himself up for them. That is our Lord, and the kids are rejoicing. All right, let me pray. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you saved us by grace through faith and that you are holding on to us still. We thank you for the life that we have in your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we are alive, not because of our works, but because of the work of your son. Grant us the grace, Lord, to keep that message clear and simple and the heart to treat one another with love and dignity and honor. May what people experience from this place be Jesus and only Jesus. Where we are tempted to create laws and rules, Lord, rebuke us and may we repent and be graciously restored to that clear message that Jesus saves. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.